Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's sermon podcast at Yarmouth Wesleyan. We hope that you are encouraged by the message that you're about to hear. Uh, And we would really appreciate uh, if you would subscribe on Apple Music or follow us on Spotify. That really helps us continue uh, to do the work that we are doing. So thanks again for tuning in and enjoy the message. How are we doing? Uh, anybody sick of being asked how you're doing during COVID? It, uh, it feels, being asked how you're doing in COVID kind of feels like checking on the weather in Southwest Nova. Give it an hour and it'll change. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's, uh, it's the pandemic for sure, but there just seems to be when you talk to people a sense of, if you ask them how they're doing, how they're holding up, one minute they're doing great, and the next hour, it feels like the world is coming unglued or their world is coming unglued. Uh, one great day where everything is going your way can be turned on a dime, and tomorrow could be the worst day of the year. It feels like a real up and down. To, is that true? And you kind of talk to people, and I think sometimes it's not the downs that are hard to deal with. It's the whiplash of going up and down so fast. It's hope that is almost like things are getting better and then something changes on a dime and it feels like your hopes are dashed in a moment. And so it feels like it's not just the down, but how fast they come. And so I don't know what's in the air this week, but I thought, man, you know what you do for church tonight is have a good old campfire. I don't know where that came from or why, but I was like, I wonder if I could put a campfire in the middle of the sanctuary and just kind of invite all the friends over and I have a little church service around a campfire because sometimes the way you talk around a campfire is not the same way you talk during a sermon. And I was like, I think our community could use a campfire chat. I don't know what that is. So if you come in next week and there's a campfire in the middle of the sanctuary, you were warned. I warned you what it might be like. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm finding beautiful resistance the whole series to be quite something. Uh, I can say that because I didn't come up with it. And so if you come to a sermon series and I say, isn't this series the best? Aren't I great? That sounds off-putting. But I didn't write this book. I didn't come up with this idea. And in fact, if I'm being super honest, the thoughts aren't even new. There's nothing we've really talked about where I've thought, you know, it has never crossed my mind that Christian people should be loving I haven't come into a sermon where we talk about worship and not being an idolatrous bunch. Like, you know, this whole idea of Christians worshiping, that's groundbreaking information. I have not found it to be that way, and yet I have found this series to be wildly challenging. I think for me, and I can't speak for all of you, I think what the the book has done and where it's kind of taken us on a journey is it has taken subjects that I know to be true in my head and put them under the microscope for a few moments. And I think sometimes what happens is we assume fundamental truths are being applied when maybe they always aren't. And so I found myself last week being convicted by my own sermon while I was preaching it. Like, I wanted to say, amen, preacher, that's good, while I was preaching. Because I was like, I... I just need this stuff. It's so foundational. It's not breaking my brain in complexity, but it's so fundamental to who we are as Christians. And so I don't know about you, but I've just found like, man, I've needed this. I have needed 
to walk through some of these subjects and really ask the Lord, am I getting comfortable? Am am I kind of getting overly relaxed? And the answer has been yes to almost every single one of them. And so if you ever feel like I'm preaching at you, please know I'm not. I'm preaching with you because I go through it first. And then even while I'm preaching, I'm like, well, I think I need to fix a few things in my life. But this week has felt that way too. The subject we're tackling this week, I again found myself processing, like, I know this to be true, and yet I avoid it or skip past it so many times. And and the angle this week is that our sacrifice must resist our privilege. Our sacrifice must resist our privilege. We must be sacrificial people, not privileged, entitled people. Have you ever paused to just count how many blessings you have? Uh, I don't do that very often because I'm entitled. Tracking with me? (laughs) The issue is that I am entitled. I think I deserve all these blessings, and so I don't pause enough to think, my goodness, there are so many blessings that have been given to me. And then, again, I don't know about you, once the pandemic came, I was like, well, I'm not blessed at all. I'm just suffering. That is it. I suffer exclusively every day around the clock. I suffer because I don't want to wear a mask, so I'm suffering. And it's like, whoa, hold on a second. And you start jotting some notes to yourself. And I just jotted a few things that came to mind. I don't know if these are true for you, but I jotted down. If you have a vehicle and a little bit of gas money to get around, you're privileged. If you never wonder where your next meal is coming from, you're privileged. I had supper before I came here to service, and guess what I'm going to do after supper, after service? See what happened there? (laughs) Freudian slip. After this, after I get you all to go home, guess what I'm going to do? Go have second supper. And I'm not wondering where first supper came from or where second supper came from. And if the mood strikes me the way it will, third supper might come tonight. I don't wonder where my meals are coming from. I'm privileged. If you were raised in a stable home by loving parents, you are privileged. If you had a family in this province during the lockdown, you're privileged. If your health allows you to enjoy a robust life, you're privileged. If you have flexible time, you're privileged. If your household makes over 30000 a year, you are privileged and blessed. And it's one of those things where none of those are big ideas. They're just things we almost assume to be true. And so the idea is, I don't presume that all of you are blessed in the same way, because that's not true. We don't have the same blessings. We have not been given the same privileges. We weren't raised in the same homes. We don't have the same income. We don't have the same flexibility of time. But if you pause with a pen and a piece of paper tonight and ask the Lord, where have I been blessed? I promise you, if you can't say anything else, you can write down, I live in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. I'm blessed. We get million-dollar views all the time. There are social things we have access to because we're Canadians that we're just privileged. There's just things that are available to us that other people in other parts of the world can't imagine that we would ever take it for granted. And so it's not a matter of if we're privileged or if we're blessed. The question is, what do we do with it? 
Now, for some people, when they realize this whole idea of being privileged, is some people, their initial response is to want to deny it. I'm not privileged. I'm a hard worker. I earned this. I brought myself up by my own bootstraps. Oh, did you? Who gave you the good health? Who gave you the work ethic? Who gave you a strong back to go to work? Because I don't care what money you're making, raising yourself up from your own bootstraps. One phone call, and it's all over. And so some people deny the privileges they've been given. Some people want to minimize it or normalize it. Like, well, I'm not blessed. I mean, we're all blessed. Uh, it's one of those things where you need to take your blessings serious because it's not normal. You need to count your blessings that you've been given. And if you can't find your blessings, and I say this with all the love I can say, you need to get a broader perspective of the world. You need to open those eyes up that God gave you and with as much grace as possible, look around you and just start counting the blessings that he has poured upon you. And for some people, if we can be real honest, we want to hoard our privileges. Sometimes we have a scarcity mindset. If you have and I don't, I better hold tight. Or what I've been given, I better cling to it or it might be taken from me. And sometimes we think, if I'm winning, you're losing. Or if you're winning, I'm losing. We start to do a hoarding mentality of whatever I've been given, I'm just going to cling to it because no one's going to take it away from me. There's another way. When you read Beautiful Resistance, this whole idea is that the Christians are called to live differently. There's supposed to be another way we process and we do life. We are to live differently. It's one of those things where it's meant to be beautiful too. We've done the finger shaking. We've done the yelling on the street corner. We've done the guilt and condemnation. It is meant to be beautiful. That's the idea. And so I want to go to a passage of scripture in Acts chapter 4. If you brought your Bibles, iPads, whatever you brought with you, dig them out. It will be on the screen here. But Acts chapter 4 is a passage that sounds a lot like Acts chapter 2. If you're reading the book of Acts, you read through Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit blows upon people and it says 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. And then in verses 42 to 47, it said these people started meeting in homes and breaking bread and worshiping, had signs and wonders, and they gave to anyone who had need, and, and, and. And the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. And then it shifts gears. But in Acts chapter 4, it comes back to that idea of people giving to people who had need. But in Acts chapter 4, it kind of blows it out a little bit more. Start with me in verse 32, and it might be on the screen right here. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them, to him, was his own, but they had everything in common— And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid at the apostles' feet. Stop. 
Next chapter is Acts chapter 5. If you want to go home and read a passage that will mess with your mind, go home and read where these people lie about how much they sold their land for and God strikes them dead. You're like, uh, that should be in the Old Testament. We could do two and a half hours right now on what that's all about. But for tonight, I'm going to take the easy way out and do before that all happens. Before that happens, you see the church functioning in a really unique way. They have and some have not. Now, what they do next is fascinating. Because as you go through the passage, you'll see incredible generosity, incredible sacrifice, incredible privilege, incredible blessings. Now, before we dig for the next few moments, let me just say this by way of disclaimer. The passage primarily hovers around money because there's context things going on. That's the main subject. But while we go through this, please don't hover just around money as though that's the only way to be privileged. Some of you have not been privileged financially. And so you could listen to this sermon like, well, I, have, I just have nothing to give. You've been privileged in different ways at different times and in different homes to do different things. So when I said earlier about family and your home and your ability to cook and words of encouragement and, 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 and. There are many ways that God has blessed you and made you privileged. The point is our privileges are meant to be poured out. So please do not sit here like, well, I just don't have money. That's not only what I'm talking about. However, some of you have been privileged with money, straight up. Some of you have been given God-given gifts to turn $1 into 10. You're just good. God blessed you in marvelous ways, and that is a privilege. And what you do with it is what we're about to talk about, but this is not a, money, a sermon about money. First thing we see the church doing is that Christians believe their privileges ought to be shared. They just believe as a fundamental core value, our privileges are meant to be shared. Please know I said Christians and not the church. That's intentional tonight. I think sometimes what we do, and I have helped you do it, is we talk about the responsibility of the church, not the responsibility of the Christian. So I go to a church that's generous. Well, are you generous? And so tonight I want to be able to make sure we talk about not just what is the corporate church doing, but what is the individual Christian doing? Because the corporate church can't do what the individual Christian isn't doing. This is not about what are we doing, but what am I doing with the privileges that I've been given. And these Christians believed that their privileges ought to be shared. The scripture says they had everything in common. I really wanted to start the sermon by saying, opening line, what is the difference between a Christian and a communist? And then just wait. Like, uh, What? <laughs> Okay, different word. What's the difference between a Christian and a socialist? Like, uh, what? <laughs> you know what communism is, right? It's the idea of having everything in common and sharing as giving as anyone who had need. Sounds like Christianity to me. See, what, what, what Marxism had going for it is different than what Christianity has going for it. What Marx was about is nobody owned anything. It all went up to the government, and then it was distributed based on your value, 
work ethic, or need. That's not what this is about. This is not government-orchestrated generosity. This is not about you giving your money to the government and the government chopping it up and spreading it out. This is even about you giving all of your money and possessions to the church and the church chopping up and spreading it out. There's nowhere in our Christian faith or heritage where private ownership was outlawed. That's communism or socialism where you don't own anything. It's given back to you. And so you'll go on websites at times where you'll hear people pitch that Christianity and communism, they're the same thing. We're not doing generosity by law. We're doing generosity by heart transformation. See, it says no one claimed their stuff as their own. Or in the ESV, no one said it belonged to them. What that means is their private property, their private possessions were held open-handed. These are my possessions, and they're on the table for anyone who needs them. I have two vehicles, and you're walking. Borrow my vehicle. I've got a big home, and you need a room. My home is your home. I make a big meal, and you're hungry. There's a seat at our table. Communism is about removing private ownership. Christianity is about transforming the heart that sees all the privileges as things to be stewarded, not things to be clung to. So there's a real shift in how we do this. And it's also not about doing things for other people to think well of you. Like, sometimes if we can be honest, our generosity is actually posturing. When, when they ask Jesus in Matthew 22, who's the greatest? I mean, they're actually at the last supper, as in no more suppers to come. And their question is, hey, which one of us is the most important? Who's the most significant? Who's the greatest? And Jesus says, great question. I value being great, AJ's translation, because at no point does Jesus down talk or erode greatness. He just redefines it. So he says, if you want to be great, fantastic. Serve someone. Put the towel around your waist. Give to those who have need. There is a place to be great in the kingdom, but it's by going down, not going up. It's by lowering, not climbing. It's by serving, not being served. And so when we talk about Christian generosity, when we talk about having things in common, the idea is what do I have that you need? Where have I been privileged that I can bless you? Where can my strengths serve your weaknesses? It was an assumed value at a fundamental level that these things were to be shared. The next thing you see in the passage is that the Christians created margin for generosity. It is good to give out of your abundance. That's fantastic. And in fact, most people either give out of their abundance or truth be told, give out of their leftovers. What we see here is they gave as people who had need, and then the Bible specifies that, in fact, some of them were landowners and homeowners. And they sold some of their possessions to create accessibility of fluid assets. Like, well, I would give more if I had more access to money. You know, it's all tied up in the business. It's all tied up in the four-wheeler and the, this. Like, well, this is going to be painful but there was once a group of people called the church. 
and they ask themselves, what do I not need? Where can I downsize? Where can I place self-inflicted restraint so that if I can't be generous in my abundance, I will create margins to be generous? It's going through your home and looking at your room saying, is there a room we can turn into a spare bedroom for the time when somebody needs a place to stay? It's going through your budget saying, I know we need these things, but what could we cut to create a budget line or an envelope called generosity? It's not there today, but we're going to make it there later. It's going through your calendar and saying, I'm just too busy to help people. Well, then what needs to go? What needs to be cut out where you have margin in your life, an emotional reserve tank to say when those needs come up, when I'm traveling like the Good Samaritan and see the bloody body on the ditch, I am trying to live a life that has margin and space to serve people. Please don't buy the lie that you will be generous when you have the time. Please don't buy the lie you'll be generous when you make more money. Please don't do that. That is a lie from the enemy trying to cut you off from being generous today. You might be generous with a dime today, but if you can't be generous with a dime today, you won't be generous with $1,000 five years from now. And so church, this is, this is the thing where you see through our history that where they didn't have abundance, they looked for places to create margin in their life budgets, calendars to say, we must be ready to help those who are in need. The third thing you see as you go through here is that Christians were giving as a response to grace. Because right about this point of the sermon is where I pull up the old guilt knife and start digging in real good. And I start showing pictures of starving children in our community. And I start waving my finger at you for not doing more. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Guilt gets you to sign up for one go-around. Guilt gets you to part with whatever money is in your pocket if money is still a thing. I remember being in services where people would get up and make a big spiel and then say, take whatever's in your pocket and throw it in the bucket and give it to the children who are hungry. I'm like, well, I, who can argue with that? That is not the same as having a heart of generosity. I was just responding to guilt. Duty is a terrible motivator. Obligation is a terrible motivator. Creating laws for generosity is a terrible motivator. See, it says in the passage that they gave as anyone who had need because great grace was upon them. This might be a foreign concept to you, but there are people in the world who give to create intimacy with God. I will give to create a connection with God. I will give so that God overlooks a multitude of sins. The church gives after getting close to Jesus. See, the world says, I will give to ease my conscience. I will give to atone for my sins that I've gone for through. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that he first loved you. And when you get close to him, he changes your heart for generosity. You're not giving or serving or loving people to atone and pay for your sins. That's not the gospel. Jesus died for me 
while I was still a sinner. Now, here's the thing. That's forgiveness. And I am so thankful for forgiveness. Um, you, you can count your blessings tonight. Then try counting your sins. <laughs> I am thankful for the grace of Jesus that forgives me. But church, you need to be thankful for the grace of Jesus that enables you to live a new life. And when it said great grace was upon them, they're already Christians. They're already saved. That's not what that is. It's the grace that enables them to live the life they're called to live. That's the difference. If you want to be generous, if you want to serve your people around you, if you want to figure, how do I reorient my life and my time and my emotional reserves and, 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 don't run out and do it. Get close to Jesus. Move closer to him and watch what he does to your heart. Watch what he does to your values and your priorities and watch what he, how he stirs there. And then all of a sudden as the grace starts to move, he sends his Holy Spirit upon you. And the Spirit gives you wisdom and discernment. Because the point is not to run out here tonight and run to the ATM and empty your bank account. <laughs> and run back to me like, there, let me lay it at your feet. You look like an apostle. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is not to run home tonight and stick a for sale sign in your front yard and sell your house. Settle down. The point is to move close to Jesus. And then here's what will happen. He will give you eyes to see where you're to serve. He will give you eyes to see your home in new ways you've ever seen it before. He'll give you new ways of seeing your schedule where it's a Friday night and it could be a quiet Friday night. And sometimes you need a quiet Friday night, but sometimes you need a rowdy Friday night. Sometimes you need to put on extra food. Like, well, who are we having over? We're not sure yet. But we're going to start sending messages. And we're going to start inviting there are times where you need to go home and have a nap after church on Sunday. And sometimes you need to cook two roasts and say, who's coming over? We're not sure yet. But we're preparing ourselves to share what we've been privileged with. And so please don't go sell your house tonight. Please don't go empty your bank account and give it to me. I mean, if you want to give it to me personally, I'll receive it. Don't give it to the church. Don't, don't, be, don't be reckless. Risk with faith. Move close to Jesus. Let him nudge you and tap you on the shoulder and give you eyes to see so that then you can give to people as they have need, church.